Well, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Sanctuary. Uh, and it's just such a privilege uh, to be able to share a word with you this morning. We're glad you could join us. I know there's a few different new groups in the room, so hi over here. Glad you could join us. Hey, thank you. <laughs> well, let's give them a round of applause for joining us at Sanctuary this morning. Thanks, guys. We're glad you could be here. Uh, just to kind of refresh where we have been the last few weeks, it has been incredible. I was reflecting on, on where we have been as a community, really, over the last three weeks, and I was, was kind of blown away. I mean, God has been just so, so good. We had an incredible Good Friday service with nine mosaic churches here in the Twin Cities. I mean, we had preachers who were, were at the very top of their game. God was using them in a powerful way. And then we, we had, of course, Easter. And Pastor Edrum uh, gave a great message about how we're supposed to come and see what, what, the empty tomb, but we're supposed to go and tell the reality that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, that He has come back from the grave. And then uh, we had some powerful imagery last week with uh, not only are we supposed to come and see and go and tell, but we're not supposed to stay stuck in, in where we're right at. We're not supposed to become complacent that, that Jesus has risen from the dead, but we're supposed to go beyond here. Well, intermixed with, with all of that, we had an incredible celebration of baptism last week where we heard testimony of people who are giving their lives to Jesus and choosing uh, to live in light of His resurrection power. Amen? And then, of course, we heard the, the great announcement that Pastor Edron has been nominated to be the next senior pastor. Woo! And I do have to say, I, I saw the, the 411, obviously, at the first service. I still can't quite get over what I just saw on that screen. Jeremy is, is, is out. I mean, he's just out of his mind. He's, he's on a roll. Um, well, it has been an amazing roller coaster for sure. And we have dug deep into uh, the saving message of Jesus. But friends, after the resurrection, things don't slow down. And they don't slow down much for us either. Uh, the journey was just beginning for the disciples, and it truly is just beginning uh, for you and I. As P.E. talked about last week, just as God sent Jesus into the world, likewise, Jesus is sending uh, the disciples to go and make other disciples. The very definition of being a disciple of Jesus includes being a sent one. If you consider yourself to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, you too are a sent one. You're a sent one. The cool thing is, is that we can tie our faith, our very faith, to those 11 disciples. Our faith has been passed down from generation to generation, from the first disciples, eventually to us by others who have been sent without them and everyone in between. None of us here would have a faith in Jesus Christ. How did it happen that the disciples go from being afraid and hiding out in the upper room following the resurrection to spreading the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God to every corner of the earth? How did Jesus' followers live out their identity as the sent ones? How can we learn from the early church about what it means to live Jesus in the places we find ourselves? How do we make living Jesus practical when we're at work, out on the town, in public, and not just inside our, our comfortable church walls, making choices about how we want to spend our one and precious life, in the words of Mary Oliver? 
on a really personal level. How do we initiate spiritual conversations with our neighbors that are real and authentic and not just talking about the weather? How do we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God in an ever-polarized and broken world? To better understand what it means to be a sent one, we're going to take the next few weeks uh, to read about the early disciples in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, it reveals the potential of the church when it is guided and empowered by the Spirit. That's what we want to explore in this series that we're calling The Sent Ones, by exploring the book of Acts and what it has to, to tell us. Well, before we go any further, I believe it's helpful to have a sort of a, an expanded vision of what the book of Acts is about. A couple, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, Pastor Adrian used one of the, the videos from the Bible Project in describing another book in the Bible. It really short way to get an overview of what the book's about. We're going to look at one from the Bible Project now in the book of Acts, the first couple of chapters. So if we could play that, it'll be about eight minutes and I'll come back up. The Book of Acts. It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing his disciples about life in his kingdom. So he promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in his personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the Messianic kingdom, God's presence, his Spirit, would come and take up residence among his people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit will empower his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man who was vindicated after his suffering and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so he promises that he will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria full of non-Jewish people, and then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth. 
This video is just going to focus on the first half of the book. So the Jerusalem focus section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city. And the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind and something like flames appear over each person's head and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds. And they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before, but all the people gathered there understand perfectly. Now, in order to see what Luke's emphasizing in this story, it's crucial to see the Old Testament roots of all of these images. So first, the wind and the fire is a direct allusion to the stories about God's glorious fiery presence filling the tabernacle and the temple. And it's also connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by his spirit in the new temple of the messianic kingdom. And so here in Acts, God's fiery presence comes to dwell not in a building, but in his people. Luke is saying that the new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus' new covenant family, the people of Jesus, which connects to the second thing Luke is trying to say here. So the prophets promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple, he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the messianic king, and that the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced to the nations. Luke describes in detail the international multi-tribe makeup of all of the Israelites who were there at Pentecost and who responded to Peter's message. And so the apostles keep calling Israelites to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and thousands upon thousands respond forming new communities of generosity and worship and celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now, in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts, only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor which is really cool, but it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And this conflict between the two temples, it culminates in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's the first wave of persecution. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested, and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers God sent them, including Jesus and now his disciples. So the Jerusalem leaders are enraged. They murder Stephen and they launch a wave of persecution against Jesus' followers that drives most of them from the city. But it has a paradoxical effect. Luke shows how this tragedy actually became the means by which Jesus' people are now sent out into Judea and Samaria.
Now, in this section, Luke has collected a diverse group of stories that all show how the mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement. So first is the mission of Philip into Samaria. It's the land of Israel's hated enemies, and many of them come to follow Jesus. Next, we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of Jesus' followers until he personally met the risen Jesus, and he then became a passionate advocate on behalf of Jesus. Next is the story of Peter having a vision about how God doesn't consider non-Jewish people ritually impure or unworthy of joining Jesus' family. And so Peter, he's led by the Spirit into the house of a Roman soldier, just full of non-Jewish people, and they all respond to the good news about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit shows up powerfully upon them, just as he did to the Jewish disciples back in chapter 2. These themes all come together in the founding of the church in Antioch, the largest, most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. And Luke, he tells us that Barnabas, a Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church, went along with Paul to help lead this church community. And so it became the first large multi-ethnic church in history. It was where Jesus' followers were called Christians for the first time. And it's from here that the first international missionaries were sent out. And so we see Jesus' commission coming true, and this takes us into the rest of Luke's story. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Acts. Mm. I just love those videos. They give such a great firm foundation uh, for understanding context and history. And certainly, uh, check them out on YouTube. They have uh, some on most of the different books of the Bible. But... um, well, when we read the first two chapters of Acts, what we tend to focus on uh, is the Holy Spirit and what happens afterward. We read just a little bit of chapter one, but we're pretty quick to move on to the big events that follow. And as we begin this series, I really want to, I, I do want to start with the big event, but then I want us to go back and really examine chapter one, which sets up the big event of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because it's in chapter 1 where we learn how they got to the big moment and what it means to follow Jesus as one of his sent ones. Let's uh, open up our Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we'll also read verses 11 through 18. Uh, You can also follow along in the screen uh, if you don't have that handy with you today. Uh, Begins in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with one another in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Isn't that amazing? God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, could have given them any power to accomplish the goal of making disciples of all the nations. But rather than giving them power to conquer, the power that they've been given is the power of language to convince a skeptical and hostile world the truth and love of Jesus. Because that's what love does. Love doesn't seek to conquer or dominate. The moment that love starts to do those things, it's no longer can be considered love. No, 
The Holy Spirit gives them the power of language so that they can communicate the truth of the king and the kingdom to everyone, everywhere, so that they can choose uh, for themselves life. Well, let's pick up in, in, in verse 11. It says, both Jews and converts to Judaism, the Cretans and the Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd saying, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They will prophesy. I've been given this incredible power, really a superpower, to speak to everyone everywhere. They have the gift of communicating in every language. It's even better than Google Translate, right? Perhaps we could even call it code shifting or cross-cultural competency where you're able to transcend culture and language barriers to make a point, gain understanding, or even more importantly, develop relationships. Imagine what we could do, imagine what you could do if you could communicate in every language and dialect and communicate across generational and cultural differences seamlessly. I tell you, I think you'd become one of the most important people in any room because you could help people understand each other. More important than, than just helping others understand one another, you also have the power to cast vision because you can dream of a different future. You can help people not just imagine a different future. You can actually tell the future because you have the gift of prophecy. You know what's happening in the kingdom. Did you know there was a time earlier in Scripture where this was possible? If we were to flip backwards to Genesis, we would come across a story about the Tower of Babel. But as people develop the ability to, 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 to communicate and have the gift of language, they were starting to use it for their own power, their own glory, their own might. And God wanted no part of that. He destroyed the tower and He scattered the people. But in this moment, though, the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, people are brought back together and the gift of language is restored. And we have to ask why. Why would God do this? Isn't the risk too great? Well, let's go back now to chapter 1 to see what's going on. I want to, again, open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read from the message for us, so you'll be able to see that on screen, but follow along in whatever version you have. It says, Dear Philosophus, Philophilus, <laughs> in the first volume of the book, I wrote on everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he said goodbye to the apostles, the ones he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. And he was taken up to heaven. After his death, he presented himself alive to them in many different settings over a period of 40 days. In face-to-face -face meetings, he talked to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. 
as they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem, but must wait for what the Father promised, the promise you heard from me. Jesus baptized in water, John baptized in water, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And soon, when they were together for the last time, they asked, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this the time? And he told them, you don't get to know the time. Timing is the Father's business. Timing is the Father's business. What you will get is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the world. These were his last words, and as they watched, he was taken up and disappeared in the clouds. They stood there, staring into empty sky, and suddenly two men appeared in white robes. They said, you Galileans, why do you just stand here looking up at an empty sky? This very Jesus who was taken up from among you to heaven will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. Wow. I think just about every motivational speaker has a riff on the theme of necessity of preparation and equipping before action to achieve success. Perhaps we could even say that action without preparation leads to destruction. One of the ways Jesus prepares people is to pull them away for a time of preparation and equipping. No one would think it would be wise to have a surgeon operate who hadn't been to medical school, right? You wouldn't get on a plane by a piloted, that was piloted by somebody who had only folded paper airplanes. No. On a much more serious level, uh, the freedom riders, civil rights leaders, Black Lives Matter activists, and the American Indian Movement activists, they wouldn't have been able to endure what they did or share the message that they did if they had not been prepared for what they were going to experience. One, of the, one way we learn is to spend dedicated time intentionally learning from a mentor or guide. Well. I, Maybe over the years, you've heard me talk about a few opportunities that I've had uh, to spend focused time uh, on, on Jesus and what God is, is doing in my life. Uh, various times, I've, I've talked about a sabbatical that I had an opportunity to take in 2007. It was coming off in an intense period of, of ministry, and I was really wrestling with how to lead a suburban congregation in areas of racial reconciliation, justice, and community development. I knew that I needed to sit with others who could help me explore things that I couldn't see on my own. I had long admired the work of Dr. Perkins in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, he, for those that don't know, is a contemporary of Dr. King, and he's known as the father of Christian community development. I remember praying about how I might connect with him, and I felt led to just pick up the phone and call him. Well, the phone was answered by his daughter, Miss Elizabeth, and I explained who I was and what I was thinking about, and I could hear in her voice almost something of a knowing, uh, like this was something that she had heard before. Well, before she could, could answer much, her dad, Dr. Perkins, uh, walked into the room, and she handed him the phone. Well, we had a good conversation, and one thing led to the next, and before we knew it, my wife and kids and I were in the car on our way to Jackson, Mississippi for the summer of 2007. That summer we got to Jackson, Mississippi, by the way, is hot in the summer. You learn a lot 
about people when you learn about their weather. But I got to meet Dr. Perkins, his wife Vera May, uh, Wayne and Elizabeth, Lowell, Dixie, Johnny, Emily, and just a bunch of other people. Uh, and during that summer, we got up early because Dr. Perkins did his Bible study early in the morning. We listened to good music uh, because it's down by the Mississippi Delta. We talked and cried about so many things. Mostly, we avoided the midday rains, uh, and we shared meals together. One of the real blessings was I got to travel with Dr. Perkins to Memphis and Birmingham, Mendenhall, and even Laurel, Mississippi. I and also met many other people who were on a similar journey, uh, who came through Jackson to live and to learn. Uh, one of the things I distinctly remembered, though, during my time there was listening to the story of a reporter from the Clarion Ledger in Jackson. Uh, she herself was from Laurel, Mississippi, uh, which was really the epicenter of a lot of hate in Mississippi, uh, and she told this horrific story about growing up as a black girl in that town. And she ended the story with this message. She said, be my witnesses, be my witnesses. Well, I imagine that's a bit what these days with Jesus were like for the disciples. They were days categorized by food, fellowship, and deeply intimate stories about all that had been experienced, good stories and bad stories, hard and um, so forth. But, but these days were for a purpose. Soon and very soon, these disciples would be heading back out into their community. They would be pressed for the stories of what they had experienced. They would be asked, is it really true that Jesus had come back from the dead and had secured our salvation and our restored relationship with God? They would be asked about the kingdom that Jesus had talked about that was based upon things like good news for the poor, freedom for the imprisoned, healing for the blind, the end of oppression, and restoration of economic opportunity for all. They would need to be able to cast vision for what that looked like in their time. But more than just the areas around Jerusalem, Jesus was equipping them to spread this message of hope far beyond, to the ends of the earth. To do this, they needed to be sure of the story. They needed strength. They needed to have a vision about what could be rather than what was, and they needed the ability to communicate that effectively. That brings us to Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit. These things are impossible on our own strength. We need the outpouring of the Spirit. Friends, I don't believe we're ready to be sent unless we've been prepared for what lies ahead. The world is skeptical of the message. They are suspicious of the hope, that kind of vision for a world. But if we do our work learning the story, God gives us the power and the language to tell the story of salvation and the kingdom with authority that changes our world. We need to be empowered. Without this kind of preparation, our action will lead to confusion. Do you believe that? Yeah. I believe the key components to being prepared to be a sent one are we need to have intimacy with Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. And we need to know His story and how His story impacts our story. We also need to have fellowship with, our, with other believers, not only on Sundays, uh, but we need to be in each other's lives beyond Sundays. If you notice someone new or someone gone 
as part of a fellowship, we need to check in with each other. We need to encourage each other on. We need to challenge each other and hold one another accountable to keep stepping into the challenges, particularly in the areas of justice, reconciliation, and race, where only the kingdom has the vision adequate to address those divides. Amen. How often have we experienced the message of Christ being co-opted for the elevation of human leaders and others seeking power? We see that. Well, while preparation is good, we also need to avoid paralysis by analysis and trust in the Spirit. When you have been sent, you need to go because people out there can't wait another day. Finally, it's about the Spirit and trusting in the power that is at work within each one of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a sent one, and you do have the, that Holy Spirit power. Amen? Yeah. I want to bring this time to a close uh, by inviting uh, Priscilla Barkley uh, to come up on stage with me to, to share some of her journey uh, with Jesus. Uh, she is a member of our neighboring team, uh, and just uh, I really enjoyed getting to know her. Let me find a microphone for you. But Priscilla has been uh, on a journey, a journey of preparation, and uh, just thought it would be really uh, special to, to listen to and learn from, from your experience and how that, that can impact us. So can you welcome Priscilla with me this morning? Yeah. Uh, you should know I've been, I've been trying to get Priscilla on stage a, a good number of times and uh, finally have worn her down. Uh, and she's really glad that this is the last service of today. Uh, and but she does have some incredible wisdom for us. So I'll just open with an with a, with a opening question of, can you, you know, a couple of years ago you made a bold decision. Can you share how you came to that decision? This is harder than the first one. Is it? <laughs> oh. Okay. Um, yeah, so in 2017, mm-hmm. August, September of 2017, I left my job um, and yeah. decided to take a uh, 10-month sabbatical where I traveled the world for um, to 13 different countries. Yeah. Uh, the decision was not mine. Um, my husband stayed home and it really encouraged me to leave the context so that I can dive in and learn about how communities across the globe were being served. All right. Mm. How, how did you know it was time to do that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's never the right time. Um, I said this earlier, and so it really resonates with me that I grew up in the black Pentecostal church on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. And there's oftentimes a number of songs that we sing, right? I surrender all. <laughs> you sing that song. Um, and right, that commitment that I made at a young age told me it was time, right? At the age of however old I was when I went, that was when I decided that it was time, right? Because I committed my life to the Lord. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know it was time. And as the doubting Thomas that I am and the Peter that was literally asking Jesus, why am I on the water? 
um, it was not time, hmm. um, but the Lord called, and I had to respond. Yeah, right on. Mm. Yes. So you find yourself over 10 months traveling many different countries. Uh, as you experienced people in those places um, and, and learned and meditated, however that all worked, um, what vision of the kingdom do you feel like you received as part of that journey? And how is that shaping what you do now? <laughs> yeah, I, um, that's a great question. Um, if you, you really have to, maybe you should listen to both services to see what I say, because it's totally different. <laughs> um, but I think there is value of pressing pause to really heed what, uh, the, really experience the gift that God has given me. I just looked in the back and there's a professor of mine, um, in the building. Um, and I remember during that time in seminary, I experienced Sabbath. Um, and, and we in the States do not do a great job at practicing the Sabbath. We do an awful job, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at the clock and we're like, okay, Priscilla, you got two minutes to get on that stage and get off that stage <laughs> so we could take communion so I we can got go home. All afternoon. Um, but the reality is that we don't, we really don't press pause. We don't embrace the gift that God has given us. Um, and so that's one thing that I would say, and I'll bring it all back together. But then the second thing is that because we don't pre practice the Sabbath, because we don't engage in being and resting, we don't actually know how to be present with people. Mm. Um, and mm. so I would say that those are two things that um, have shaped my life that has allowed me to go into the work that I'm doing now. Um, do I practice the Sabbath on a consistent basis? No. But this gift that I was given of my sabbatical has really shaped my understanding of getting in tune with myself so that I can be in tune with someone else. Uh, and then on the other side of that, I have now have an appreciation for the other. Um, and, and being in context where you are the other, where you can't speak languages, where um, where people are looking at you and like, what are you doing here? Literally, what are you doing here? Mm. Because your kind is not here. Um, really being uncomfortable. And so I have been challenged through my sabbatical to think about ways that I am called to be uncomfortable as a Christ follower. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could spend just a little bit of time uh, talking about the members of Sanctuary. Uh, up on the, the video, uh, it talked about Antioch uh, being this incredibly large multicultural church on, uh, in an urban area. I, I know of a church that maybe is a large multicultural church at the, in an urban area. Um, what, what could we be doing uh, as a church from your perspective um, to prepare ourselves for multicultural ministry? Yeah. Yeah. So during my time, as I've alluded to, um, in most contexts, people did not uh, look like me and didn't speak the same language that I was, that I spoke in. Um, and, and because I spoke a language that is elevated in, our, in the world, um, I held a level of privilege that 
some people don't have. Um, and so in the context of sanctuary, um, being on the north side of Minneapolis, many of us walk in this place with lots of privilege. Mm. Um, for me, I had the privilege of growing up and I didn't have uh, rodents in my home. And um, But when I'm sitting in the Philippines and, and look up and then there's a rat and a cockroach running through, right? My privilege was checked at the door. Mm. And I think we as a community, we really need to check our privilege at the door. Um, and we need to get uncomfortable um, and be reminded that communities, especially my white brothers and sisters, this community doesn't need you, but you need them. Mm. And I mean, that will sit home with you. That will resonate with you when you get home. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because we walk into this place, right? Or me as a Christian entering into a Muslim context, right? Like, yes, my, the good news is great. But there are so many image bearers out there that don't know that they're image bearers. And they're reflecting Jesus better than I am. So as we enter into this space, into this beautiful facility, I was overseas when the open, hmm. opening service was launched. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. This building doesn't matter. Hmm. What matters is how are we posturing ourselves? And if you really think that that <laughs> Broadway needs you, you need a reality check. Mm -hmm. So, in, as we think about ministering cross-culturally, um, like, it's not, it's not a hip thing. Like, this is, like, really ask yourself and ask the Lord to move in your life to say, what does it mean for me, right? Like, it, you don't need to be down with the cause, right? It's not just about being down with the cause, but your life really needs to be transformed to do this work. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you. Uh, one of, I, I, as I was just listening to your answer, uh, one of the, the things that, that, that came through my uh, mind was the importance of and the reality that white people can't place that burden on, on black people and people of color, that we have to do our own work uh, as white people. We can't always come to, to those of, of color and, and ask for advice and direction. Uh, we have to do our own work uh, on this journey so that we can be equally yoked, or maybe that's not even the right word, right? Uh, that, that we can be in relationship well with each other. Yeah, and for me it was, when I entered into the homes across the seas, right? Like, I didn't stay in the hotel, right? And that's what we have a tendency to do. We're gonna travel abroad and say like, ooh, look at the stamp that I got on my passport, look at all the countries that I went to. But no, there's a difference between sitting and staying in the home yeah. of someone that is the other. Whose homes are you sitting in? Mm. Uh, there is a level of embodied solidarity that has um, just this weekend I've been shaped by this concept as a, 
a woman who was fired from the university that I was um, graduated from. And, um, and she embodies solidarity, and that is her hashtag, right? She embodies solidarity. What does it mean for me to embody solidarity? What does it mean for us as a community, as sanctuary, to embody solidarity on the north side? Is it that we're going to go to church on a Sunday morning, do our little check, and then go back to the suburbs and say, like, hoo-hoo, look what I did? Like, it is a life changing opportunity that the Lord has given to us. Will you respond? Will you respond? Will we respond? Amen. Mm. Thank you. Well, <laughs> thank you, Krista. Can, yes. We are so grateful um, for that testimony. Mm. Let's, um, will you join me in prayer? I invite our praise team up. Oh, Lord, thank you uh, for how you've been preparing and equipping uh, Priscilla for the ministry that's in, in front of her, how she, she looks backward, is able to push pause and, and look forward with such um, clarity and conviction. Thank you for her invitation to us to, to, to explore what it means to, to stand in solidarity, uh, in embodiment with, with others. Um, God, thank you for the challenge of being part of this community at Aldrich and West Broadway. Uh, the challenge is much bigger uh, than I think any one of us can comprehend. Because of your power, the power of the Holy Spirit that invites us into solidarity, that gives us the gift of communication, um, because Jesus, you just love us so much and have prepared for us. You have addressed our doubts about your resurrection, and you have shared with us your vision for your kingdom. God, help us to be one. Help us to be your followers. Help us to stand in solidarity. It's in your name we pray. Amen.